You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking Rates and Lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. You are listening to the Rates and Lanes podcast. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you live from Forest Park, Georgia, here at the Farmer's Market. Tonight, we are joined by our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton, transportation law extraordinaire. I know I'm, I, I, I get uh, excited when Hank comes on because he brings so much valuable information, and he takes time out of his busy schedule to come on and, and share some of the pertinent information that can help us make our businesses a little bit better and, and bring us awareness on things that we may not be aware uh, that we may just we may just take as just everyday nonchalant things that we might need to start paying closer attention to. But with no further ado, uh, if you got a question for Hank or myself, go ahead and press number one that puts you in queue for the call screener, and we will come to you and get your call screened in so we can get your question, get you up live, and get your question in to Mr. Seaton or myself. And we are going to start off tonight, as we normally do, with the USDA Fruit and Vegetable Truck Rate Report. We're going to see if we got a little bit of a change from last week. Not much movement, though. Uh, there's only one market, according to the USDA, that is showing a slight shortage, and that is southeast Missouri. Um, and I'll look further down, see if I can try to find further down in the report what exactly is moving out of southeast Missouri. Um, let's see if I can find out. Uh, melons. They have melons moving out of southeast Missouri. Didn't know that they had actually had melons coming out of southeast Missouri. Um, Everything else except for other two markets is showing an adequate supply. Uh, markets that you might want to avoid that are showing slight surpluses are South District, California, and Waccamaw Valley District, Washington. They are showing slight surpluses. Everything else is showing right now an adequate supply of truck demand uh, in those particular markets. Moving on real quickly over to this week's DAT trend lines report. Capacity recovered in the first full week after the 4th of July holiday, but load availability lagged. Load to truck ratios have declined, and rates slipped a few cents lower for vans, reefers, and flatbeds across all segments. So let's jump into the report, and let's begin with the U.S. van demand for the week of July 5th through the 11th. The load to truck ratio van slipped 17% to two loads per truck last week. As load availability increased only 4%, capacity added 25%, largely because last week uh, had five work days then the previous work, work week only had four work days. Load availability was stable in June and capacity increased 5.7% compared to May for a 5.3% decline in the load to truck ratio compared to the atypical conditions of June 2014. The ratio fell 44% from 4.3 to 2.4. Moving on, let's see, let's check and see how rates were doing last week. National average rate for vans dropped two cents to $1.87 per mile last week for dry vans. With a brief surge in the previous week, van rates trended up in the Houston and Buffalo markets last week, partially due to NAFTA traffic. Rates rise two cents in June. The average van rates rose two cents per mile from May to June due to an increase in the line haul rate. The fuel surcharge was unchanged month over month. Compared to June 2014, the total rate fell 22 cents, including a 19 cent drop in fuel surcharge from last year. Uh, last year, fuel was much higher, which gives us that uh, difference in the fuel surcharge. Quickly checking in across the country, the rates out of the northeastern corridor, uh, Philadelphia shows an average rate coming out of the northeast at $1.73 per mile for dry vans. Moving down into the southeast region of the United States, Atlanta, Georgia checks in with a rate of with an average rate of $2.15 per mile. Moving into the Midwest, coming out of Chicago, the average rate per mile is $1.96 per mile coming out of Chicago for dry vans. Moving into the south-central region of the United States, Dallas, Texas, shows a $1.90 average for dry vans. And the high-water mark coming out of the left coast, the west coast, 
showing an average rate of $2.35 per mile coming out of Los Angeles, California. Moving on over into the U.S. flatbed demand segment for the week of July 5th through the 11th. That flatbed load post only, only rose 3.9% last week, while truck posts increased 22%. A 20 to 25% increase in low bud activity is typical during the first week following a holiday. The load-to-truck ratio lost 15% to down to 14.2 loads per truck, and rates dipped another $0.02 cents per mile. Flatbed freight availability increased 9.3% in June, and capacity held steady compared to May. The resulting load-to-truck ratio rose 9.1% compared to an atypical conditions of June 2014. The ratio has declined. The load-to-truck ratio has declined 51%. Moving on over and let's check and see how the flatbed rates performed last week. The national average rate for flatbeds dipped another $0.02 last week to $2.16 per mile on average. On a decline in the load-to-truck ratio, rates remain strong in the Savannah, Dallas, and Fort Worth markets. Rates rise one cent in June. Flatbed rates increased another one cent in June compared to May. The total rate of $2.19 per mile was 24 cents lower than the national average of June 2014, largely due to a 21-cent drop in the average fuel surcharge year over year. Quickly moving in, uh, checking across the country, the high water mark for flatbed rates come out of the northeastern corridor. Harrisburg shows an average rate of $3.92 per mile. Southeast, Atlanta, Georgia, showing an average rate coming out of Atlanta of $2.67 per mile. Midwest, Rock Island, shows an average rate coming out of there at $2.71 per mile. Houston, Texas checks in with an average flatbed rate of $2.27 per mile coming out of the South Central region of the United States. Rounding up the flatbed report on rates coming out of Phoenix, Arizona, showing an average rate of $2.01 per mile coming out of Phoenix. And last but certainly not least, let's talk about the U.S. reefer demand for July 5th through the 11th. Load posts for reefers remain stable. Last week in the truck post increased 28% in the first full week after the July 4th holiday. The national average load to truck ratio dropped 22% to five loads per truck. The average rate lost three cents per mile last week. Loads uh, up 5.5% in June. Reefer load availability increased 5.5% in June, but capacity also added 6.3% compared to May. The load-to-truck ratio was stable at 5.9 loads per truck. Compared to the unusually high demand of June of 2014, the ratio has failed 49%. I was saying last week that just says that we have to go back and start tightening our belts all across the board. Uh, jumping into reefer rates, reefer rates lost three cents last week. The national average rate for reefers lost three cents in the first full week after July 4th holiday, reefer rates rose in the Sacramento, Denver, and Grand Rapids markets, but trended down in other major markets. Reefer rates added $0.03 cents in June compared to the uh, month of May, an average of $2.19 compared to the June 2014 national average fuel surcharge fell $0.20, cents, and the line haul rate dipped $0.01 cents for a $0.21 cents decline in the total rate year over year. Rates coming in across the country, moving out of the, south, uh, the northeastern corridor, Elizabeth, New Jersey, checks in, showing an average rate for reefers at $1.85 per mile. Coming out of the southeast, Lakeland, Florida, shows an average of $1.82 per mile. Moving out of the Midwest, high water mark for reefers, Green Bay, Wisconsin, checks in at $2.75 per mile on average. Coming out of the south central portion of the United States, McAllen, Texas shows an average rate of $2.01 per mile. That's coming out of the Rio Grande down there. And rounding up the reefer rate report out of the West Coast, Fresno, California shows an average rate of $2.35 per mile on average. 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, wraps up the DAT Trend Lines report for this week. And with no further ado, let's go and talk to our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton. want to thank him for taking time out of his schedule and joining us. Let's see if we can get Hank up on the board. Hank, are you there? I am here. Good deal. Good deal. Well, Hank, um, let's try and prime the pump a little bit. We got a few people that I, I had a couple of questions that I had come in through Facebook. They're they not able to get in and uh, get in and call in right now. They're going to try to listen to the show a little bit later on. But uh, okay. one question that came in, one question that came in right away is, uh, who gets the maintenance money at the end of a lease purchase, the driver or the company? Well, the maintenance money should be put in escrow uh, if it is uh, being deducted from the uh, independent contractor. And uh, at the termination of the lease, uh, the uh, owner or the carrier is required to make an accounting of the escrow and pay the balance of the maintenance that's due to the carrier, doing to the, to the owner-operator. If I understand the, the way it's worked now, assuming this is... Uh, uh, a maintenance holdback in order to uh, create a pot of money to uh, uh, repair the equipment if it breaks down uh, uh, on the road. And if that is uh, deducted from settlements, it goes to the independent contractor. Right, right. And another question that came in, and I, I think you deal, dealt with this a little bit too, um, someone was asking me about, you know, they have a situation with the broker and everything. Can they just bypass the broker and go direct bill to the shipper? If they are a motor carrier, my my guess is they have signed a written bilateral contract with the broker. Most of those contracts have a confidentiality provision, covenant not to back solicit. You have to read carefully what you sign. A lot of those covenants not to back solicit say that during the term of the contract and for a period of the year thereafter, you will neither solicit nor handle shipments uh, first uh, transported through the broker. And depending on how that's worded, that pretty well uh, can uh, uh, frustrate your efforts to go around the broker. Uh, I do have frequently situations in which the shipper contacts the carrier and says, you know, can't we cut a deal? I'm sorry. I'm tired of paying the broker. I've thrown him out on his ear. When that happens, uh, your best course of action is to actually tell the broker, look, I've been contacted by the shipper. He says he's no longer using you. He wants to solicit me. I'm being candid and telling you that uh, I'm desiring to have the freight, see what they say. Uh, the, the problem in not notifying the broker is usually those contracts have provisions that say that you'll pay them a 15 or 20% commission for the year following, and, you know, you don't want to get into one of those kinds of lawsuits. So read mm. your contract. Which takes us into another portion, which one of, one of the main things that we talk about a lot here, of course, is always talking about the uh, rule circular provision, making sure that you try to get a rule circular provision put out there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, as a, practical, time, as a practical matter, most of these, most of these uh, brokers, if you are your own independent carrier and not working as an owner-operator for a carrier, are going to want you to sign a written contract and those things usually come over the dispatch system, and uh, it pays you to look at it, uh, you know, depending upon uh, how bad the broker needs you to handle the load and how bad you need the load. Sometimes you just uh, uh, bypass good, uh, good procedures there. But when I see a written bilateral contract for a continuous period of time for a customer, and I get to that non-compete uh, provision, I put, Nothing in the foregoing will prohibit the carrier from responding to an uh, unsolicited request for service from any customer at any time. And I, I do that, not so much because of the small guys, but, you know, I have seen brokers try to say, well, you know, I gave you a load once upon a time for General Electric, so you can't haul any General Electric freight for a year, even though it's not even in the same market. So, 
for that reason, you know, I make those modifications to the contracts. Mm, mm, okay. And let's try and bring a little bit more awareness to it. I'm, I'm probably sure that some people have a little bit of knowledge about um, the situation with the bill of lading and everything, but let's talk about making sure that you are on your bill of lading. What are some of the things that when you go in as an independent contractor, or as, well, not as a contractor, but as an independent motor carrier, when you're going in and you're, and you're picking up bills that you picked up from a broker, how important is it to make sure that you are listed as the carrier of record on the bill of lading? I think it's I think it's pretty important for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you list yourself as the carrier on the bill of lading, unless you've done something else stupid, you now have recourse to the consignor if you don't get paid. Probably have recourse to the consignee too. But uh, your ability to make a cogent case that you deserve to be paid is based upon your ability to prove that you're the one that handled the load. So not only do you are you required to uh, have uh, uh, your driver sign, you know, let's say it's Hank Seaton and I'm working for Muhammad Transport, and sign the bill of lading Muhammad Transport by Hank Seaton uh, in order to preserve the carrier's uh, uh, recourse for payment of freight charges. Also, there are a couple of other good reasons. Uh, one is you want to be doggone sure that if something happens to uh, the load, your insurance company isn't able to uh, worm out from underpaying the cargo claim by claiming that you're not shown as a carrier in possession and control of the shipment. One other thing that is important is because we know double brokerage is a real issue is if you got the load from uh, XYZ Logistics and you go in and uh, Rider Logistics is named on the bill, you may have a double broker situation. Even worse, if you go in and the name is a large carrier, then you need to uh, be very sure that you understand uh, how the flow of funds is going through this system and that uh, uh, you're dealing with a credible upstream uh, middleman. From the point of view of a property broker, they should not want their name on a bill of lading for vicarious liability reasons. So uh, hopefully right. that explains uh, how how to properly deal with it. Look carefully at that document uh, to be sure what uh, what portions are filled in. Under and Map 21, what? under Map 21, which is the new broker regulations, in fact, the shipper is required to be told that the shipment is being brokered. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that you go in there and sign your name as a carrier. If they say anything, say, well, look, I'm the carrier that was called by XYZ, and uh, the spill of lading uh, defines any party in possession and control of this shipment is the carrier, and that is me. And the other big thing with the legislation, with the impending legislation that's coming down, I just want to get a feel for what you be, you know, because a lot of people, as I'm talking with people, still feel as if that the EOBR mandate is not going to, they, they, they don't think it's going to see the day of light. They, they, that even though that they're, um, making moves now to make a deadline for that to be implemented. Um, what is your take on the, on that whole EOBR situation? And I got some follow-up questions when it comes to that as well. Well, uh, I think from all that I have heard that, that Congress is behind it and that it will eventually see the light of day. The last thing I heard about it was, that there would be a phase-in implementation date. And so when it'll become effective remains to be seen. Uh, it may very well be 17 or later uh, before uh, it's mandated. Uh, I think the whole industry is fascinated with technology and, uh, you know, being able to do this on your handheld device and everything else as long as it can be uh hot wired to the to the truck and uh 
you know, I think people are talking about a, you know, a two dollar plug in in your cell phone being able to do it with an app before it all gets said and done. But uh, so I actually, think that the actually, cost, they, they, I think there the is something out here on the market for that. Yeah, yeah. I was at a, I was at a, a, a client uh, convention this past uh, weekend, and uh, the people from uh, I think it's uh, Big Road were there, and uh, yes, they were talking a lot of a lot of technology, and uh, uh, you know, it really is kind of amazing. The thing that uh, really surprises me, and uh, uh, you know, I've been in this a long time. In 1973. I went down with uh, uh, some clients to what was in the ICC, and we said, "Look, having to fill out this paper log is just is just burdensome. Why don't you allow us to use a tachograph that is that will show uh, the RPMs on the truck as a way to uh, measure hours of service?" And the bureaucrat said, "Well, uh, you know, no, uh, our rules are you got to fill out a paper log." Well, I guess what seventy three is uh, now forty years ago, and what we're doing is a twenty uh, first century tachograph, and what we're measuring is the same old thing, which is productivity, not fatigue. And you know, it seems as though they're saying, well, the methodology is cheap, but by the same token, they're tightening down the ability of a driver to get miles and get home. Uh, they seem convinced that driving during rush hour is safer than at night when nobody else is on the road. And uh, the whole issue is no longer the media uh, or the message. It's, uh, uh, it's what they're trying to measure and how it's going to hamstring drivers. Uh, you know, I'm not advocating anybody cheat, but I'm just saying that the EOBR is going to be so unforgiving that if the agency is on steroids, guys will really have to, you know, shut down 40 miles from home from the week. <laughs> and then that d- doesn't make any sense. And that, like I said, it brings me to another situ- a question as far as if, if, if the EOBR mandate get, get, gets pushed through now, does that mean that every part of the transportation industry is going to have to go to an, an EOPR type of device in every single uh, commercial vehicle? No, there are a couple. There are a couple of exceptions uh, to the extent that a uh, carrier operates in the air mile exemption. In other words, so what is it? One hundred and fifty air miles, one hundred and ten air miles. The, the local PU and PD people that are on time clocks rather than currently have to log will not have to have the EOBR. And also, uh, anybody operating a uh, less than 10,000-pound CVW truck uh, or GVW Sprinter or uh, Expediter van uh, is not currently required to log, and they won't have to have uh, an ELD on their banner sprinter. Okay, but if otherwise, much otherwise, than... otherwise, otherwise, anybody, anybody that currently has to log and goes outside uh, the air mile radius will will be governed by it. So, like uh, a lot of your. Um... Not to just throw any one particular segment under the bus, but like um, I, I know, being real world, I know a bunch of people that are in the container business, and if you run containers legally, you're not gonna make a whole lot of money. But uh, but I know some guys that 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 are, that are creative with uh, creative with getting some things done with the, within the <laughs> within the community of the container division, and and make pretty good doggone money. Um, those those guys, they would be. Uh, it's kind of a local operation, but they still travel. I think they extend beyond a one hundred mile radius. But all of the, everybody, is, other than those what you just named, would want to be re- required to get the EOBRs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my son's involved with a, uh, a container operation in Charleston. Uh, his uh, uh, his the 
drivers are on the EOBR. They're independent contractors. And, uh, you know, I, I, the problem there is not that those guys are able to average six or 700 miles a day. So it's not the drive time, it's the port time. And, uh, it's the lack of flexibility to log off that, uh, you know, creates, it creates real problems for them, port time, congestion time. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem as though, uh, we've got a very responsive ear in, uh, uh, in, in Congress to understand, uh, uh, the problems that we face. If anything, it seems as though the safety advocates, uh, have, uh, have more clout than we do. Uh, just to do very simple things like, uh, uh, like get, uh, you know, an extended, uh, uh opportunity to, uh, you know, get a three or four hour, uh, nap and not lose a work day and, uh, the things we're going through with the, just trying to justify the two overnight, uh, uh, periods, the 34 hour restart. But, uh, uh, you know, what can I say? It's going to be more regulation. Uh, at least the uh, independent contractors uh, that are pulling containers uh, uh, are usually able to do so with uh, used equipment and don't have, uh, you know, one hundred thirty or forty thousand dollars tied up in a new truck and not enough hours to use it. Right, right. So, do you think that with all of that going on, um, like we were talking about with the OBRs and everything? That there may be a, a shift from charging a rate per mile, and, and and more people may start trying to go to um, just a flat rate for a day a day service or an or an hourly rate. You got any, you got any take on that? Well, I I think that the uh, pro labor forces and the FMCSA uh, in particular are going to take a hard charge over the next few years to say that as a safety matter, truck driving should not be a job that's paid for by the mile or by the job, but by the hour. I think uh, that uh, the definition for some people of middle class is that you uh, uh, are being paid $15 an hour or more, whatever it is. But, uh, I think there you'll see efforts to reform the industry so that productivity is no longer a measure of uh, of of a man's pay. And yeah, you know, I see that. Uh, it seems like you know, truck uh, truck driving is the one enterprise that we can't seem to export to a cheaper market overseas. So it seems as though uh, that. Uh, there, there is a, a support among the legislators and, uh, and uh, safety conscious to change the way in which people are compensated. All right, let me just give a quick notice to everybody. And we've got a ton of callers on the line, and don't let me hold up, Mr. Seaton. You know, you guys got you got questions, anything's popped in your mind. Just go ahead and press number one. That way you can get in line. I see we got a ton of callers on the line, but we don't have many questions in the queue, so. Go ahead and press number one if you want to get a question in to myself or Mr. C. And going back real quick, Hank, uh, I, I, I kind of deviated off of the path. We were talking about EOBR. I mean, not uh, EOBR, but the bill, bill of lading issue. Um, yes. Let's talk about the shipper load and count situation on when it comes to bill of lading when you're going to go make a pickup. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I'll explain first of all what shipper load and count means legally, and then we'll talk about some practical application. Uh, there is in the Bill of Lading Act a provision that says that when a shipment is loaded by the shipper and unloaded by the consignee, and the Bill of Lading is marked shipper load and count, or words of similar import, that the carrier will not be responsible for the accuracy or the count are for upsets in transit unless caused by the carrier. So, in other words, if you mark on a bill, shipper load and count, and it doesn't say anything in the statute about the seal, but as a practical matter, you really have to deliver it with the seal to to be able to uh, to demonstrate that if it's 
uh, crushed inside or short that you didn't do it. But in any event, uh, if it's marked SLC, uh, and then there is a shortage on delivery, it doesn't get hung around the carrier's neck. Or if you open up the back and things are toppled over, the burden is now on the uh, shipper to prove that you were involved in an accident or a hard break situation because it could have been very well been the way you stacked it in there. Uh, those are important concepts in terms of handling cargo claims uh, because uh, uh, so frequently, uh, uh, because of workman's comp claims questions and other things, warehousemen won't even let you on the dock to see something being loaded. Uh, and uh, the carrier is somewhat suspect that there's a shortage in the warehouse and it's being made up by <laughs> the loading of the truck. Uh, so it's probably advisable for carriers who are uh, uh, under a produce load or something such as that, that they can't see the count and they're given a seal uh, to mark the bill of lading SL and C. And you do that down there where you put your name, you just put SL and C. And, uh, you know, if the doc foreman gives you grief about the fact it's SLC, you just very simply say, Hey, buddy, you would let me on the dock and, and watch me count it. I don't know how many uh, how many crates are on there, and I sure don't want to be responsible for the count. But lots of times the absence or presence of those uh, little uh, four letters, S, L, and C, can make the difference in terms of uh, the handling of a cargo plane. Now, and, and given the real-world scenario, um I have been to places where you go pick up, and they'll have clearly labeled at the um, at the at where you go to sign your bill and everything that you cannot, like you were saying, you cannot sign SL and T or STC or anything like that. In a situation like that, what is what is what is what is, what should one do? What what action should someone take? Well, you know, it's 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 truly crammed down. Uh, uh, you know, I think those people are, are abusive. Uh, I mean, they can always tell you to, uh, uh, to, uh, back away from the dock, you know, so loaded it on the truck. I guess you can say, well, why don't you unload it and reload it and let me count it? Uh, but, uh, you know, it's probably not something you won't have a fist fight over the dock about. Uh, but, uh, uh you know, <laughs> You might want to start adding to your uh, to your rates things uh, uh, a list of uh, of abusive uh, receivers and shippers for that kind of problem because over the years you know I've seen I've seen a good bit of it um, and uh, I occasionally get a claim in which there is a shortage or there's a damaged claim and. Uh, so I'll make the argument that it moved under seal and that uh, although SLNC might not have been on it, in, in effect, that the, the, the consignee or the shipper knows full well that that's ordinary procedures uh, for, for the warehouse. And uh, at that point, you, lead the, you can always, I guess, get admissible the driver's testimony that he was not allowed to count it on either end, but what you don't want to do in a cargo claim is end up buying a lawsuit and having to get a truck driver come in and testify and go through all the rest of it. It makes it a whole lot easier if you've got your paperwork together. Okay. Well, let's see. we got a caller, Jerry, that wants to talk about um, Carrier's name on the bill of lading, so let's go and let's get Jerry Jerry up on board. Well, Jerry, you're on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Yeah, I've had a... Uh I've had shippers that have told me uh, that, you know, they put the, the broker's name as the carrier and I'll, I'll line it out, put my company's name in there. And they say, no, you can't do that. And I've even had, you know, shippers that have reprinted the bill of lading and told me not to change their bill of lading. Well, you need to tell them that it's a violation of map 21 for, uh, uh, and it's a it's a violation of the broker regulations for them for a broker to be listed as a carrier on a bill of lading. 
Now, you know, uh, uh, I don't know any broker who uh, really uh, really wants to be in the line of fire for a cargo plane or for uh, uh, being drug into a lawsuit because they're named as a carrier. Um, you know, if you look at the definition of a broker uh, in the statute, which is uh, 49 CFR 371, provision that says a broker shall not represent itself as a carrier. And so that's a misrepresentation and it's a fraud. Uh, but, you know, uh, if uh, uh, lots of times what I see people doing is if you were hired by a broker and his name is on the bill of lading as a carrier, you can always go in there where you're supposed to sign your name, uh, put the name of your truck company by by your name. I mean, I tell people, look, you know, when you go in and pick it up, you're picking it up uh, as an agent for the carrier you represent. So, you know, it's very frustrating to see a guy go in and, uh, you know, he's John Sharp doing business as Sharp Transport, and he just scribbles down there, John Sharp, rather than Sharp Transport by John Sharp. So, uh, you know, again, I don't know whether or not you're going to have a fist fight, but uh, that is just plain uh, shipper ignorance. Uh, Map 21, among its other provisions, says that in every transaction, the role of the broker must be identified as the broker. And uh, the uh, other thing is, if you look Again, at the regulations in 373, it says that the carrier shall issue a receipt or bill of lading for the goods. It doesn't say that a broker will. Now, okay. if the intermediary is a freight forwarder as opposed to a broker, uh, it can, in fact, and should issue a bill of lading, but not a broker. All right, Jerry. Jerry, did that answer your question? You got a follow-up? No, that's it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Um, and 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 staying on the bill of lading issue, um, you know, it, it was amazing to me when I really started looking into this bill of lading. Um, that really, and I'm not going to be off base, so correct me if I'm wrong, Hank. But in truth, I understand that the the the, the, the broker carrier contracts and everything, but it, but other than just having a rate and everything or an agreement upon a rate, in truth, if, if the bill of lading was truly enforced properly, is there really a, even a need for all of these 19-page contracts other than just somebody covering, no, covering their backside? No, there, there, there really isn't, but there, there is another issue involved. Uh, most of you will remember that the, the bills you typically see say that they are uniform bills of lading and they have a backside. And the right. language on the backside of a bill of lading contains some very important rules of commerce that uh, uh, all too frequently can get left off. You'll see a bill that a lot of shippers are using now that's called a VIX bill. It doesn't have all of the language that's contained on the backside of a bill of lading, and that's by design because the 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 shippers uh, uh, don't want to have uh, the carrier have any rights and remedies that are otherwise set up on the backside. Uh, that's why that you know carriers that have rules tariffs uh, say that uh, the terms of the uniform bill of lading will apply regardless of what uh, document is used as a receipt for the freight. Uh, and you're right, Rico, that. Uh, in the absence of a bill of lading, uh, it uh, is the law that the carrier service terms and conditions apply if they exist and that the shipper needs to ask for them. And otherwise, the, the bill of lading, if it is a uniform bill, has a backside, and th that backside is where you get the term Section 7 because it's Section 7 of the backside of the Bill of Lading. Some of the things that are just incorporated is walking around knowledge, what we called old common carrier service, uh, was uh, 
such things as the carrier's duty to deliver with reasonable dispatch, a statement of what are the exceptions from absolute liability, and those are the common law exceptions of act or omission of the shipper, uh, inherent vice, act of God, uh, act of public enemy, uh, things like uh, uh, there's a provision on the backside of a bill of lading that says upon acceptance of the shipment, the consignee becomes liable for the freight charges. Also provisions on the bill of lading that says that you've got uh, a uh, uh, what you do with salvage. That, you know, if the shipment is rejected, you have the, the right to issue an on-hand notice and uh, and to sell the uh, the shipment for best advantage unless the consignor or consignee provides you with uh, notice of uh, of disposition. So there there are a whole bunch of things that are just incorporated into the bill of lading that, uh, for lack of better words, are rules of the road or rules of commerce that uh, I don't think you should, uh, uh, you know, have to be a, a New York lawyer and read a contract in order to deliver a load. Uh, they fairly well protect both the shipper and the broker. If anybody's interested in this uh, topic, on, on my website, there's a, a little PowerPoint of 61 things that are on a bill of lading that uh, really establish the rules of road if there isn't a contract. Now, you know, we all know that when you're hauling produce, uh, you don't usually see a uniform bill of lading, and it's got its own kind of of quirks and rules. Usually the claims are handled under the blue book or the red book, and it's a, a, a deregulated world. But for manufactured freight, the bill of lading is, I think, really helpful. So... Now, where where could one get this red, this uh, blue book and red book that you that you just mentioned? I've I've heard this mentioned before. Uh, don't know if you do you have any uh, resources where someone could maybe find a copy of those two things uh, for 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 the re, for the reefer haulers. You know, out there? I think you can probably I think you can probably I think you can probably go online. Uh, I think, and you know, I may be I may be a little archaic in my terms. I have an old copy. Uh, in Washington of of the Blue Book, what it is is it is a listing of all of the produce brokers, and they're they're listed, uh, they're rated, and they've got their uh, their addresses, at least it used to, and uh, and and what commodities they specialize in. But then there are uh, what they call the rules of produce in there. They're transportation rules, unless at least they used to be, for uh, uh, you know what temperature you set uh, different kinds of produce, what ordinarily buying and selling terms are, uh, and if there is a protest of, of a shipment or its conditions, uh, there's an effort to uh, submit it to the Blue Book for resolution, so that you get arbitration of. Of uh, some claims, rather than having having to go to court, and on on the produce side, uh, uh, the people who traditionally dealt in it, you know, swear by these uh, uh, arbitration proceedings. Uh, there's actually a uh, uh, fresh fruit and vegetable uh, uh, alternative dispute resolution process that handles trans border claims and. Uh, uh, clients that are, you know, in the uh, produce brokering business, uh, you know, seem to be very, very skilled and knowledgeable in that. But you may okay. very well okay. have people on the line that know more about it than I do. Well, I, I think that just by you mentioning that, you said it may, it may have be as, as a directory of, uh, of a bunch of the produce brokers and what they may handle. I, I, don't, I think that that in itself is a nugget that if people that are on the line that are listening, people that may be hauling reefers or whatever, might want to really try and run down and grab a copy of that because that may help uh, help you uh, give you a little bit of a leg up if you happen yeah. to be in certain areas instead of chasing chasing down some stuff on the low board. Uh, you might be able to. Yeah, you know, I'm sure. I'm with, sure that I'm sure 
that whatever services the Blue Book sponsor have gotten uh, are, are not in a book anymore. Here it is. Uh, I just I just dialed it up. It says Produce Blue Book, www.produceBlueBook.com, leading credit and marketing information agency serving wholesale produce industry since uh, 1901. And then, you know, you can... Uh, I assume I assume that they still have their uh, 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 publish their their rules of uh, of produce in their arbitration program. Uh, I haven't used it in, in a number of years, but uh, let's see. Let's go on with your next question, and I'll I'll see what I can find on the web while we're talking about it. I just found it as well. I'll put a link up to uh, I'll put a link up on the uh, Rates and Lanes uh, podcast page for anybody that's interested in. It. I'll put a I'll put a uh, share this link on the uh, on the Facebook page. Um, well, we talked about um, we talked about Section Seven. We went into that a little bit. We talked about shipper loading count. So now let's just try and let's try and uh, walk it back a little bit and make people understand. When, if you're dealing directly with a broker about how we should be reading those broker contracts as far as what okay. are the things, the things that we may need to be uh, a lot more conscious of instead of just when they, they say, well, I'm going to send my package over, um, you know, and, and we're going through those things and just flying through them and trying to sign them and send them back in. It, it should, should we take a little bit more time and, and, and at least skim through those things? Yeah, I think it's... As we mentioned before uh, on on the show, uh, there are uh, at least a dirty dozen worth of uh, contract provisions that typically appear in a typical broker contract that uh, uh, one should should fly spec. Uh, with respect to the, the cargo claim aspect. They're very typically provisions that say that the carrier will indemnify and hold the broker harmless from any claim. Well, that means that the, the, the broker has the ability to pay the claim and then turn to you for recompense and not only get to choose the amount and the validity of the claim, also get his attorney's fees from you when he sues you. So you don't indemnify a broker for a cargo claim. You accept liability for a cargo claim under the law subject to a, uh, a limit of liability, and you take care to be sure that uh, the load is limited to uh, or the value that you'll pay is limited by the contract to your of your insurance. In that regard, uh, one carrier, SRT, uh, just got hit for a $5.7 million cargo loss uh, because their con their contract with uh, their shipper provided that they must have insurance in the amount of $250,000 for cargo, but it did not say that their liability was limited to two hundred and fifty. And, uh, you know, fortunately, it's a division of covenant. They can... Uh, they can take it, but for a small carrier, that <laughs> that would put lights out. We're handling a yes, case sir. right now for a small for a small carrier who got a load that he from a broker, and apparently he did not limit his liability in the broker contract, or that's in dispute. Uh, it turned out that the, the the load was a container load going. Uh, uh, from Mexico to Canada via the U.S., and it was stolen when it was in Canada. Uh, only then did the load uh, contents, of course, was under seal. They find out that they were suits and pants uh, worth uh, $297,000. And the problem there is the carrier's cargo insurance doesn't cover the clothing and uh, in addition to that, it doesn't cover theft. So, uh, you know, the take-home from that is one needs to be sure you understand 
what exclusions exist in your insurance policy and need to properly limit your liability in the uh, broker carrier agreement. So, I mean, those are just some those are just some horror shows. One of the things that frustrates me the most is provisions in broker contracts that say that the broker reserves the right to offset against your freight charges any claim. Uh, there are certain certain brokers who are notorious for keeping their shippers very happy by never meeting the claim they wouldn't pay an offset. Uh, going right. hand in glove with that are provisions in contracts that say, if we have any dispute, you will come to my hometown and play with my court. So, right, you know, for a guy, yeah, the, it's called a homer provision. So offsets, homers, and then there's another provision that's showing up with great frequency. It says that you're extending credit only for the broker and you agree under no circumstance when you take your recourse right. to the shipper. And, you know, I guess the question is, uh, you tell the broker, look, look, buddy, if you're going to pay me in 30 days, I don't have any reason to. I'll agree that, uh, you know, I will not uh, uh, ask for payment from the shipper without giving you 10 days notice of your default. But, uh, you know, why should I give up the collection rights? The other thing is, you know, in trucking, we're the only damn industry that will extend 30 or 45 days worth of credit without asking for it. <laughs> any interest, attorney's fees, and waiving your lien. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know, it's just we've got a tradition of being stupid. Unfortunately, um, I I, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's, it's getting pretty bad. But, hey, we're coming up on, we got about 10 minutes left in the show, and I want to, I'd be remiss in my duties if I didn't give you an opportunity to uh, tell everybody about um, first of all, tell everybody about your book, um, how they can get in contact with you if they need it, if they need anything, and, um, and, 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 and other services and things like that that you guys may be able to provide to our listeners that, that may, uh, may have sure. sure. Our Sure. Our website is called transportationlaw.net. It's transportationlaw.net. And if you play around on the web long enough, you'll find that we have got uh, a number of... Uh, uh, free PowerPoints, a number of articles that are, are digest, uh, you know, things like shipper load and count and, and, and section seven you could find with, with articles that uh, explain it a bit. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, you know, a provision to order the, uh, the old book protecting motor carrier interest in, in, in contracts. Uh, as uh, Rico and some listeners know, I am finishing off a, a new book which uh, will go beyond contracts and bills of lading and those kinds of things and cover some of the things we've talked about tonight, such as uh, uh, as as collection and cargo claims. And uh, I've even put a section in terms of uh, compliance with safety and some of some of my thoughts about the the FMCSA and its. Uh, 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 new postures on some of the rules we've talked about, uh, ELDs and uh, uh, you know medical exams and uh, speed limiters and those things are are all all mentioned uh, you know to some extent. So uh, you know, hopefully, I've got to get the the book proofread and published, and uh, you know, it, it may be a couple more months, but it's still coming. Uh, you can get my contact information off of transportationlaw.net. I'll be happy to, uh, uh, you know, to respond to, uh, uh, you know, uh, small small carriers and people who who need uh, just a, you know a quick uh, uh, quick assistance. And I guess that's about it. I'm not really trying to, uh, you know, tell my services as much as I am just to offer some help when it's needed. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, otherwise I'll turn it back to you, Rico, if you got any more questions to uh, occupy the, well, I think, five, ten minutes we got left. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate, you You know, you taking your time, and I just think that, you know, uh, just just out of gratitude, you know, give you, a, give you an opportunity, not necessarily uh, 
not necessarily something that you were reaching out to solicit for, but I understand that we all are in business and, and why not uh, patronize those that are, that are helpful and sympathetic to our cause as, as uh, small motor carriers. Uh, you know, let's try and pay it forward by, by patronizing those that are, that are taking time that, that are really uh, have our best interests in mind and at heart. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's uh, you the know, main I, reason why I, I put I'll, I'll mention there. I'll mention this as a as as another thing. It's not something that uh, you know I'm trying to monetize, but uh, in in representing some uh, trade associations composed of small carriers, uh, we are launching a uh, uh, what will be a a website opportunity to uh, to keep up and track. Uh, uh, legislation and rules that are before the uh, FMCSA, and this this website will allow uh, uh, people. It's interactive to the point that it will allow people to uh, uh, read about the bills, and if they feel uh, interested in contacting their congressmen and senators, to go online, fill out uh, uh, their comments, and will be automatically sent to their congressmen and their two senators. So. I think that's uh, going to be a uh, very interesting tool for advocacy, particularly given the fact that there's a real tendency for uh, you know 90% of us that are in transportation to be uh, small carriers and uh, small individuals that are very simply not very well represented. Right, and that's one of the reasons you know that, that I, I appreciate you coming on and, and on the show and everything because a lot of times you know we don't get good information being small guys and, and we don't have the budgets to have the, the major law firm law firms on retainer. So you know, it, trying to give us small guys an opportunity to uh, get a chance to talk to someone as knowledgeable as yourself and maybe try to, uh, as the old saying goes, uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if we can head things off before we get into them by being more aware of what's going on, then I think that um, not trying to put you out of business or anything. <laughs> no, no, listen, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, that's not it. And the other thing is that uh, anybody who's been in this industry lo- uh, learns after a while is the big law firms really don't represent truck companies much because truck companies notoriously don't pay the fees the way other folks do. And, it's not a general, it, it's a specialty. Uh, you know, you go to most even really big law firms and you start talking about some of the things that the, the average truck driver knows and deals with. Uh, they'd have to go hit the books a long, hard time to, you know, even even get up to speed on it. So uh, I think maybe the, the advantage that some of the larger clients have over the small guys is they have got... Uh, non-lawyers uh, in-house who uh, have a corporate history with some of these things. I mean, you know, hopefully the people on this on this call are only going to see one or two major cargo claims the next five years. Uh, that cargo claim could wipe them out. But, you know, if you're in charge of uh, cargo claims for a... Uh, one of the hundred largest carriers, and you end up uh, you end up uh, understanding it, and you, you learn by repetition. Right, right. Well, Hank, uh, we're getting ready to wrap it up. I just wanted to, uh, like I said, give you an opportunity to talk about some things that you guys may offer for the small guys that are out there. Uh, just want to sure. let everyone know while we're still live on the air, um, do a little bit of housekeeping here. Uh, Kenny Long, my uh, counterpart, he has his podcast on Tuesday night at the same time, 7 p.m., Trucking with Authority. Kenny uh, talks about all things about getting started in the trucking industry, about, uh, you know, initially setting up your authority, and things have uh, evolved around that nature. So if you have any questions or you'd like to learn more about getting started with your own authority, Kenny Long is a great podcast, very informative. You might want to check him out on Tuesday evenings at 7 p.m. Um, call-in number for Kenny's show is 646-668. 2277. That's 646-668-2277. That is Trucking with Authority. Of course, you're listening to live right now to Race and Lane. This is Wednesday night. Um, you know you know what we're all about here. We're all about trying to get, get you more information to make your business more productive, and we try to give you more insights on different Race and Lane information that, that, are, that may be out there to help you get more to your bottom line. 
Uh, our other co-host, uh, Kim Cochran, has her show on Friday, Destination Health. Her show revolves around you and the transportation industry trying to become more healthy. That's every Friday at 4 p.m. And the call-in number for Kim's show is 347-324-3285. And rounding out uh, the latest addition to the Audio Road Let's Trucking Network is uh, Mike and Kevin Beckett. Their show revolves around all things with the front end, tires, uh, alignments. Their show is called Rolling Toe, and it comes on every Sunday at 9 p.m. The call-in number for Mike's show is 347-637-1067. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to uh, thank everyone for taking time out of their busy schedules to come and check out the Racing Lane podcast tonight. We also want to extend a special gratitude and thanks to our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton, for coming in with this monthly checkup and informative, well, uh, giving us some more information on things that we need to be more aware of. This is Rico Muhammad signing off from Forest Park, Georgia. Want to thank the Kevin Rutherford and the entire Let's Truck team for everything that they do to help us make this podcast available. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to thank you. God bless you. Be safe out there. And good night. Thanks again, Hank. Hey, Rico, give me a call, will you? I will do. Okay. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.